It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the $850 million subsidy sports business podcast, The Sportacast. I thought you were going to say, thank you, Big Apple. You know, (laughs) thank you, Empire State Podcast. Thanks for the money. Do I look like a Pagula, Scott? (laughs) You do do not look like a Pagula. Uh, You are nowhere near wealthy enough. Um, And and I mean that only in that I see how you're dressed, much like I am right now in sort of the the gray sweatshirt. Uh, You know, I've got my sweatpants on, but I will go back. If folks, if you have not seen the Wall Street Journal article on whether or not working in sweatpants has unleashed your genius, Oh Go boy. to it. I mean, I, Eben, I was two decades ahead of my time. I mean, you were. I mean, that this is what I've been telling people. You, you think better, you work better if you're comfortable. And I, I just feel comfortable in my sweatpants. Fashion is a pendulum, as you know. This will swing back uh, away from you, I think. But for now, you can bask in it for the sure. The beauty is I'm on both sides of that. I'm there when it's <laughs> in. I, I sustain when, when it goes out. And then I'm there again when it's back in because I just don't change. Much Perfect. to the chagrin of my wife. She's begging me. I, you know what her Christmas gift was? To you? or from no, My you? Christmas gift to her. Yeah. I was that I, I would let her take me shopping. <laughs> How magnanimous of you. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, for me, I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't like it. So, I mean, that is giving something up because, you know, I, I just don't buy new stuff. But anyway, to get to the matter at hand, yes, the Buffalo Bills, we had... We had heard the playbook, right? We, we know you start to hear the rumblings of, I don't know, you know, we're going to, our stadium is no good. We can't compete. We need a new stadium. Then there's a little bit of pushback and there's, well, you know, it'd be a shame if we had to go look elsewhere to you know, get that public pressure on, could the Bills leave Buffalo? But alas, here we are. Um, you, you said it, a, a record public subsidy for a professional sports franchise, eight Hundred and fifty million dollars, six hundred million of it coming from New York State, and two hundred and fifty million coming from Erie County. You say what? I, I mean, it's it's clear this is a perfect time for the Bills to have had this conversation. New York State it sometimes is under really big budget cuts and re- restrictions. Right now, they're kind of a wash in federal money. It makes this conversation, I think, a bit easier for politicians in the state to to kind of push through. Scott, we've talked a lot about how the the NFL in the past few years moved two teams to LA, kind of took away that chip that that NFL teams for two decades, it seemed like, seemed to be playing. The, oh, if you don't give me money for the stadium, maybe I'll move to LA. It does not seem as though the relocation threat has changed at all. LA may not be a, a logical place. The Bills are not never going to move to LA now, obviously. But 
it's still kind of the playbook, as you mentioned. It's the, we want a new stadium. If you're not willing to give us hundreds of millions of dollars to do it, oh, hmm, maybe we'll look somewhere else. We can maybe find a city that would will be willing to do this. We should say that the Bills are kicking in $350 million and another 200 mil from the NFL's about, G4 about loan a third. program. Yeah. Yeah. So, and also we should point out, you got, you know, you got to have some size and scope. What does this mean? What, you know, what is that number? When you're talking about the state budget, this is peanuts. It, it's really, it's almost nothing. Like, you know, the governor even said, I'm not going to hold this up over this little amount of money. Yes, it's a lot of money, but we're not going to hold this up or stop this project. It, it's just minuscule when you're talking about the entire state budget. And, and that's the interesting thing, right? Is that you're right. It's it's minuscule from a dollars and cents standpoint. From a thing that people in in Western New York care about, it's actually probably pretty high, right? You don't want to be the politician that that made the vote that made the bills leave uh, leave Western New York, right? That's that's the that's the kind of the, the leverage point that the bills and and really every professional sports team that goes to have these conversations with local legislators, that's the thing they're playing on. That that in the grand scheme of things, budget wise, it's not a huge dollar amount. But if it does go sour for the state or for the county and the team leaves, then it becomes a massive, massive problem for politicians, right? So so that little dichotomy, I think, is part of the part of the crux of the issue here, Scott. I, I know that you also like Field of Schemes. I think Neil does a really good job. He tweeted this, which I think is fascinating. To pay off this money, this public money, every Bills fan would need to generate $100 of state and county taxes for every game the Bills play, which sounds like an astronomical amount of money. So that's the economics that are at play here, uh, which I think is interesting context when, when you're talking about, again, as you mentioned, the, the the biggest public subsidy we've ever seen for a sports stadium. Well, and it wasn't so long ago that we had the previous record uh, established because it was for the Raiders to move from California to Nevada and Las Vegas. That was a $750 million subsidy. Not a surprise that uh, it was Las Vegas trying to get on the pro sports team track. Of course, uh, they've got a hockey team as well now. Um, it's not a surprise that it's the NFL, the biggest bad boy on the block. You know, uh, I do question, though, Eben, the use of the stadium. You can build a stadium like SoFi, like Allegiant, and it's going to get used for a whole bunch of things. What else, pray tell, is this stadium going to be used for in Western New York? It's it's hard for NFL venues. We had this conversation with Kevin Demoff, the CEO of the Rams, just a few months ago, right before the Super Bowl, Scott. It, it, this is not like an arena where you can have 300 events booked per year and, and really make a lot of money off of these things. There are NFL stadiums that sit essentially entirely dark outside of the the, the, the 10 regular season and, and, and preseason games that they play each year. It, it, the economics are a bit harder. They're, they're, they're big, they're cavernous, they're often placed in, in, in more difficult locations than arenas are. The acoustics aren't all that great. Um, so, so again, I think one of the big questions here is going to be how effective will uh, this stadium be at drawing other things? Because you're right, the economics here have to be more than Bill's games. And could they be monster truck? Could they be concerts? Possibly for sure. But again, it becomes a bit harder when you're an, an, an NFL venue, especially now that there's so many, and, and, and Western New York doesn't have one right now, but there are so many great MLS venues that are also outdoors. They're a bit smaller. They fit there probably a little bit better for a lot of concerts and things. There's just a lot of competition in a lot of places. So no question, this stadium needs to get more non-NFL events to make the economics work. It's just generally hard, much harder to do that 
if you're an NFL stadium than it is if you're an NBA or NHL arena. And call me a wimp, call me whatever you want. I do not care. As you know, you know, my son, the hockey player, one of the year end events that we have participated in in the past and is pretty popular on the youth hockey circuit is the Buffalo Cup, which ends mm-hmm. the year. And, you know, so, so it's, it's winter time. And I, I'm, and I say this in air quotes, one of the draws of attending this event is you get to play outdoor games down by the river. So imagine the 8 a.m. face-off down by the river in Buffalo, snow is falling, wind is swirling. You could see, as a spectator, forget it. Like you give yourself a period, you got to go inside and warm up. It's how a lovely sweat, How many sweatpants are you wearing? I've got the long johns, I've got this, yeah, the whole thing. And you could see the kids. It's pretty funny to watch. It's the great equalizer. Good team versus, let's say, less talented team. Neither one can really skaters to candle because it's just too darn cold. Like after you, you think if you're moving around, you'll be fine. Fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my, my son, he did. The, I think the uh, the big hurrah for him was he got to do the, you know, put the uh, winter hat over the helmet. You know, that look for like that. Some of the, NHL yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. So, so of course dad had to figure out, you know, it's not as easy, by the way, you got to double side the tape and you got to make sure it's over. You don't want it popping off during the game and they're moving around. So not as easy, but, uh, that's one thing I got to do. And what do you think about this? I've been the complicating factor in all this is that the Pakulas are not a one team enterprise. Like it would not be great to move the bills out of New York and still be the stewards of the Sabres in Buffalo backlash against the, the the owners, of course, I would assume there would be, as well as sort of the synergies, some of the synergies you lose by losing two teams in the same market. My general feeling is that almost every team that threatens to move is is bluffing in, in large part. And I, I know I say that knowing that there, there have been some teams that have had some high profile moves in the NFL. St. Louis on line one. <laughs> but I, 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 I do not think of the Bills as a potential flight risk, really. And, and, and to, in, in my mind... And I want to get your thoughts on this. I think of the past five years as it seems as though local politicians are kind of getting hip to the game a little bit. But I say that knowing that we had a $750 million public subsidy for, for the Las Vegas stadium. Now we have an $850 million public subsidy for, for one in Buffalo. Where do you where do you put kind of the, the, the status of this kind of back and forth? Do you feel like NFL owners continue to have the the the, the leverage here? Do you think that there are local politicians that are catching on to the idea that maybe they don't have to give as much and they still get the the, the really rich billionaire owners to to foot a bigger amount of the bill? Where, where does it stand right now? I would say overwhelmingly, I don't have the, the percentage in my brain here, but overwhelmingly, yes, the team will have the leverage because they really are you know, generational things, right? You know, the, your dad took, took you, his dad took him. You really do have that in pro sports. Now, that said, there was a little while there when budgets were squeezed and teachers were not getting raises and firehouses were closing with a public appetite for public money. So I, I, it was not what it used to be. So it also depends on the time. You better have some good timing. And like you just said, the Pagulas have good timing here. And by the way, they have a great young quarterback and this team is pretty darn good. That doesn't hurt either. So they have a whole bunch of things working in their favor. But the NFL has a pretty darn good system set up where they know for the most part that fans are addicted to their product and that they would be willing to pay whatever it is to keep it around town. Speaking of a good product, Scott, we are four teams left in the men's NCAA tournament. There was so many upsets, so many great storylines. Hello, St. Peter's. At the end of the day, 
we ended up with four of the most established, most blue bloody programs of the past 20 years in college basketball, Villanova, Duke, UNC, and Kansas. I imagine particularly in the Turner offices uh, where they're going to have the final four. There are some pretty excited people over there to have Duke and UNC meeting for the first time ever in the tournament, I believe, in the final four in Coach K's last year. Uh, you couldn't script it any better. And I know St. Peter's as the upstart would have been, you know, obviously very good Duke and St. Peter's, but, and and I can't believe, did you know the stat that, that Duke and Carolina had never met in the men's basketball tournament? It blew my mind also. I I was stunned by it. Yeah. Yeah. So the first meeting coach K's final year, uh, new Orleans, great venue. I'm sure that place is going to get pounded by, by ACC fans, not Syracuse, uh, you know, no, no editorializing there. Right. Uh, sorry, Jim Beheim. Um, what was your question? Uh, <laughs> I mean, essentially it seems like this worked out perfectly, right? You get it, your upsets, it, it, you get your great storylines, but when the rubber hits the road in, everybody in the big knows games, you, you want, you want games. the Goliaths. Everybody knows when, it, when, when the rubber meets the road and you're down there at final four, you want the Goliaths, you want good games. The worst thing would be to have a St. Peter's advance and get blown out. Like the game's over at halftime. That's what we saw last time Which against Carolina. Saw. Yeah, exactly. That is not what you want. Um, you like to have your upsets in the early rounds, and then you like your blue bloods to be there at the end. So you're right. The TV executives are absolutely thrilled with what they've gotten. And my, and my personal connection to Villanova, you know Rolly Massimino? I do you know, not. Rolly Massimino. No, great you don't, name. You don't know, you don't know Rolly name. Massimino? Oh, I do not. I'm, I'm excited I, to learn about Rolly, though. I'm not going to name names, but there are those who listen to the program who regularly text us when you don't know something. Or yeah, <laughs> they are. This, I am going to allow them a two-minute period of just, just sighing, going, are you kidding me? Anyway, Rolly Massimino, uh, you look him up. And I, I won't even say who he was because I want you to go look. But a uh, fraternity brother of my father's at the University of Vermont. Okay. So that you go look up Rolly Massimino in, in Villanova um, and let me know what, what comes back to you. I will. I will. We'll do that on the, on the show later this week. Some other things on, on, on NCAA tournament, Scott. Every year, the, the NCAA has a very complex way of paying out teams depending on, or conferences depending on how their teams do in the tournament. But we now know essentially how much each conference is going to make off their success in the tournament this year. The ACC will not surprise people. Uh, going to make $36.4 million. That's the most. Tied with the Big Ten, though, and I think this is interesting, Scott, because the ACC uh, had five teams in the tournament. Three of them made it to the Elite Eight, UNC, Duke, and Miami. Uh, by all intents and measures, a, a really positive and, 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 and great tournament for the ACC. By, by the way, after all year, everybody was down on the ACC saying how terrible the league was in basketball yeah. this year. So let, let's just wait until the money matters, right? The other conference that's bringing home the same amount is the Big Ten, which I think any basketball fan would say a, a supremely disappointing tournament for the Big Ten. But the Big Ten put nine teams into the tournament. None of them made it out of the Sweet 16. But because the way the NCAA pays this out is the amount of games your conference plays, they ended up playing a lot of games because they had nine teams in the tournament. So the ACC and the Big Ten are the big winners here. Another one that stands out to me, Scott, the, the, the MAC where St. Peter's plays, uh, $8 million haul here. It has been more than a decade since a MAC team played more than one game in the NCAA tournament. They are always a get the automatic qualifier, lose to a really good program. Um, St. Peter's essentially did four years worth of earning uh, in one year here. Uh, so definitely a standout there for the Mac as well. Yeah, and I like there is a there is some agreement in the Mac schools where St. Peter's will get a little bit more than the others as the team that did it. Is that correct? 
Like they, they there is some. I know the WAC has that more. for Gonzaga. I don't know exactly what the MAC is going to do. Essentially, it's each conference has the right to do with this kind of however they please. the The big conferences generally break these all up evenly. For other conferences, if you look at the WAC, for example, right, Gonzaga has made so much money for the WAC in in the past decade. Um, Gonzaga had a lot of leverage to tell them, "Hey, look, if we're if we're generating, you know, six of these units every year, it feels like maybe we should get more of that." But what do you think the other schools would say? You, like you just brought up leverage. What would the other schools say? Okay, well, you don't want to pay an even share. Fine. What are you going to lose? So yeah, this is a, this is exactly the kind of conversation that happened. And and the Mac is interesting because you mentioned St. Peter's there. The last five tournament berths that the Mac has earned have all been Iona, right? So you're in this looking back the past six years, five units from Iona, four from St. Peter's. Iona is still a bigger money earner right now, and and you can say those are automatic qualifiers. So someone was going to get them either way. But it is interesting to see how smaller conferences deal with this thing when for the bigger conferences no matter what Duke or UNC do in the tournament, everybody in the ACC is going to end up getting an equal amount of this payout over the next six years. Another personal touch point, you bring up Iona. A, a friend of mine that I grew up playing youth soccer with, Rick Cole, was the uh, athletic director at Iona. And I don't know if he uh, it was the years that they were doing this. That would be great, wasn't it? Was Jeff Rulin is the he, coach Is there? he related to Roly Massimino? He is not related to Roly Massimino, <laughs> I can assure you. But Rick Cole, so I hope Rick's a listener. I know I, I know we stay in touch every now and then. And now he's the athletic director at Hofstra. Okay. So He likes yeah. those uh, right around New York City uh, schools. Huh? Well, you know, that's where he's from. That's where the family is. I believe he has two daughters playing volleyball at Duke. And so you know where he's rooting. And a son who plays volleyball at Pepperdine. Wow. So pretty darn good, right? That's a, that's a good gig. Volleyball at, uh, team at Pepperdine, hanging in Malibu on the beach, whatever. Yeah, I imagine that's a nice little setup. That That is a very, very good setup. Speaking of setups, how about another Final Four from the Blue Bloods of the NCAA tournament to the Final Four bidding for Chelsea? I guess, you know, these are kind of Blue Bloods also, right? If we were making that, if we're going to keep the analogy going, we've got a Final Four of Blue Bloods to be expected in the bidding to uh, take over for Roman Abramovich as the owner of that Premier League team. Does anyone stand out here, especially to you? I'll, I'll give the four names, the, the four groups that seem to be kind of the front runners left to, to, to win this, all led by American sports owners. One group led by Steve Paliuka, owner of the, of the Boston Celtics. Another by Josh Harris and David Blitzer, owners of the 76ers and the New Jersey Devils. Another by Todd Bowley, an investor in both the LA Lakers and the LA Dodgers. The last one led by Tom Ricketts, owner of the Cubs. Any surprises here to you, Scott? What are your thoughts when you see those four names? I was a little surprised by my friend Steve Paliuka, and I texted him saying, look at you managing to avoid me, you know, avoid detection uh, with this Chelsea, but only because he just recently bought Atalanta, you know, another soccer team. Um, So to be jump right back in on a big purchase like this. uh, But Steve does think big. He said he's a part owner of the Celtics, along with Rick Grosbeck and a whole bunch of LPs there. But I'd have to think in, in reading tea leaves, that Josh Harris and David Blitzer and Todd Bowley and the groups they have assembled, right, heavy on local presence or somewhat local presence, uh, would have an advantage because this isn't going to be just about money. And Josh is a value investor. If this was going to go to the highest bidder, just straight up biggest number wins, I would put Josh lower on the list. Because I think, again, even in the bidding on the Mets, like Josh Harris was about a billion dollars shy of Steve Cohen. He's not going to overpay just to get an asset. It has to pencil out for Josh. So this particular 
um, sale, the high price may not get the team. What the, There are two things. Of course, money is important, yes. But whoever the government deems will be the best steward of the franchise moving forward, that will matter greatly. Thus, the local flavor in these groups, that's an important part of it all. So that being said, I think you got to give a really, really strong nod to Josh Harris. Uh, Todd Boley as well with with the group he has put together and the, the presence in sports he has. But again, I, I would say the Ricketts are a distant fourth because of a little bit of the problems that, you know, the patriarch of the family with some Muslim comments, they've come out and, and apologized. And I, I don't think, you know, the fan supporters there are, are saying no to Ricketts. That's going to be a problem. Um, but then, you know, hey, Steve Paliuka, I, I didn't see him coming on this bit. I didn't think he would be involved, but I would never cross his name off because, uh, you know, he, he is certainly uh, a stand-up guy and a, and a very strong professional sports team owner. I think local flavor there is, is, is a really interesting part of this, that, that, that feels like the kind of the, the, the mode we're in right now, as you know, Scott, oftentimes these groups reshuffle when somebody gets eliminated, they may call up another group and say, Hey, look, you know, you, do you need any money? I'm happy to put in a couple hundred million dollars. There are local people in London in the same way that we talk about, John Elway and Peyton Manning for the Denver Broncos. There are people that add a lot of value, maybe not a ton of money to your group, but really do serve a purpose locally um, in terms of advocating for your group, for representing your group, et cetera. Um, that seems to be kind of th this interesting stage we're at where we're going to soon, I think, learn a lot about who else is with some of these U.S. owners. We know how historically a lot of European soccer fans have felt about uh, American billionaire owners. I think the local aspect is going to be really important for all these guys. Scott, we would be, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least mention if this sale could not get any weirder, we've had war, we've had sanctions, we've had frozen assets. Um, the wall street journal reporting today that Roman Abramowitz, the current owner of Chelsea showing signs that he may have been poisoned at some point during negotiations between Russia and Ukraine, that everything about this sale seems to get crazier and crazier easier as the days go on. I'm, I don't know how fast the book will come out, the 30 for 30, <laughs> whatever it may be, but it will not take long. And uh, you talked about sort of that local importance, Evan, and I talk about this all the time uh, when the Dodgers were sold from Frank McCourt, who was, let's just say, not a very popular owner in LA, right? So of course, Todd Boley came in and part of his group was Magic Johnson. And I call it smile equity with magic, right? There's a lot of gravitas in that smile, a local celebrity, a local uh, beloved figure. And normally, the people with the money, those who are bringing the money are the ones who hold interviews. It was flipped around when it came to magic. Magic was the one who held interviews to all the bid groups on the Dodgers saying, tell me why I should join you. I'm in control here. Because that local gravitas was so important coming off for Frank McCourt that Magic was in a very enviable position, as are the locals in all these bid groups. They understand that they play an outsized role, even if they're not coming with an equal share of capital. And especially for the, the, the Chelsea, we know that their stadium needs a lot of work. Uh, it's going to be a difficult project to get through. It's going to be extremely expensive. Anyone you can add to your bid group that maybe has some political sway in the UK, for example, that makes the the stadium question about your ownership maybe a bit more palatable, maybe greases the wheels there a little bit. I think also is maybe in, in high demand here for a lot of these bidders because again, they're 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 all being led, all these groups, by people who live five thousand miles away. 
All right. The guy who does not know Roly Massimino can be found on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. The guy who does know Roly Massimino can be found at Sashnik. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Cora Veltman is our social media editor. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.